It's Today Explained, I'm Noelle King. A brother and sister were pulled out of a collapsed building in northwest Syria yesterday. The girl, who looks to be about six or seven, had reportedly said to a rescue worker, get me out of here, I'll do anything for you. And that rescue worker delivered. In fact, the girl's whole family survived. The death toll from that 7.8 magnitude earthquake and its aftershocks that hit Turkey and Syria has risen to 11,600. And that number is being updated every few hours. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, declared a three-month state of emergency, saying he believes Turkish people will exhibit patience. But after all this, it's unclear how much patience they have. Meanwhile, in northwest Syria, there's little government to even speak of. Up next, two reporters join us from the region to tell us what they're seeing. Support for Che Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Uh, yes, my name is Piotr Zalewski, and I'm the Economist's uh, Turkey correspondent. Where are you right now, Piotr? I'm on the outskirts of Antakya, which is a city of about 400,000 people in southern Turkey, close to the Mediterranean coast. Piotr Zalewski sounded almost stunned by what he'd seen in Antakya. When we talked, it was Tuesday evening there, and he'd returned to the outskirts of that city. I've just come out of the city center uh, where the situation is quite grim. I mean, it's quite grim on the outskirts as well. I don't have the official numbers or exact numbers, but I can tell you that it seems as if every other building in uh, the city, or at least in the city center, has been completely uh, destroyed. There are other buildings that are leaning to one side or another and look to be on the verge of collapsing, which is one reason why no one wants to go back into uh, his or her house. So people are camping out outdoors. There are tent cities um, sprouting up all over the local parks. Some people will be sleeping in their cars. Uh, But the devastation is quite extreme. And the rescue workers here are, are overwhelmed and overstretched. What's the weather like? It's not freezing, but it's getting quite cold. It's cloudy. There's also cloud of smoke over the city, and that's a cloud of smoke from Iskenderun, which is another town about an hour uh, away from here. And uh, there, um, we were driving by, and we saw a port, a 
that uh, was being consumed by fire. And it's the smoke from that fire that's spreading over the neighboring mountains and over Antakya itself. But inside the city, uh, the scenes are quite um, apocalyptic. People are being pulled uh, from the rubble, um, but by people, I unfortunately mean uh, corpses mostly. There are some survivors, there are some miracles, but uh, the situation for the most part is quite hopeless. Um, so much so that uh, you, know, you have bodies um, wrapped in blankets or rugs lining um, the main thoroughfare. Um, and those are corpses being wait, you know, waiting to, to be picked up um, uh, by, uh, by emergency crews. And there are also wounded people um, in the streets uh, waiting for ambulances. As you can hear probably in the background, yeah, um, there are quite a few ambulances here. Okay. Military helicopters as well. President Erdogan, the Turkish president, uh, declared a state of emergency in the 10 provinces uh, most affected by the earthquake. Uh, so obviously military um, is starting to pour in. It's been now um, almost two days, I guess um, 36 hours or so since the quake. And so any hope of uh, finding uh, survivors is quickly diminishing also because there simply isn't you know, enough equipment and enough uh, manpower uh, to cope with, uh, with the scale of the disaster. I imagine people are in shock. What are people saying to you? What are they telling you? Uh, well, you know, I mean, you have people who are obviously undergoing severe anguish. Everyone has uh, a relative, you know, seems to have a relative they can't get a hold of. You know, social media in Turkey is full of tweets and the like by people in Antakya, in places like Antakya, who are trapped in the rubble and asking for help. And there's a sense of, you know, frustration, exasperation, uh, because folks are realizing that uh, the rescue workers simply will not get to more than a fraction of the people uh, who are trapped under the rubble. Can you tell me why was this earthquake so deadly? This is a part of the world that is frequently hit by earthquakes, and... I might imagine that there would be preparations for this kind of thing, but you're saying in, in, in Antakya, it looks to you like every second building has collapsed. What's going on, Piotr? One reason is obviously the fact that um, uh, Antakya sits atop uh, a fault line that stretches for hundreds of kilometers to the east. And the devastation along that fault line along that 500-kilometer belt is, is extreme. And it's also extreme south of that belt in northern Syria. And there, obviously, the humanitarian situation is even more dramatic because access um, for rescue workers is much more uh, restricted. So the scale of these earthquakes also explains um, the extent of the damage, um, at least uh, somewhat. Um, but what also explains the extent of the damage is the um, quality of the housing here. Mm. Uh, uh, a lot of the houses that have collapsed, probably the you know, vast majority are houses that were built in the 80s and 90s and that were built in plain you know, disregard of um, building codes that were not adequately um, earthquake-proofed. And 
you know, the Erdogan government has actually done sort of a half-decent job of um, earthquake-proofing houses across Turkey. Like they claim to have renewed some three million, or more than three million housing units. Um, but that's only a fraction of the total housing stock. Um, and uh, what has made things worse, actually, is a decision by um, this government to offer uh, what's called a building amnesty uh, to people who were um, developers uh, uh, who built uh, illegally um, over the past few years. And clearly, this government will have to answer um, for uh, these building amnesties. But uh, there's no shortage of people who will be or ought to be taken into account. You know, this starting from previous governments who also passed building amnesties to generations of developers who built on the cheap and who built uh, illegally. This is one of those events that has obviously drawn the attention of much of the world. What is the international response? Who is who is helping? Who's really standing out at this time? I mean, I've seen, you know, television footage of uh, rescue teams arriving from uh, Japan, for example. Um, I understand help is pouring in from a number of countries. I haven't seen any international foreign rescue teams in Antakya. Uh, the problem is that a lot of locals in Antakya haven't seen Turkish teams either. And so uh, the effort is, at least as far as they see it, inadequate and the resources that uh, the state here has at its disposal are seen to be inadequate as well. Just to give you an idea of you know uh, some of the scenes unfolding here, I saw um, an elderly woman uh, pleading with some soldiers to clear the rubble of uh, her son's house. She said she knew that her son was inside, but uh, he couldn't be heard from. And so the soldiers explained to her that they have to make difficult choices. They have to prioritize. So the heavy equipment that they have, um, the diggers, the uh, cranes, uh, they only use in those areas, those buildings where uh, there's hope of finding survivors. And they said that across the street was another building where they could hear the voices of people um, trapped under the rubble. Um, and they explained to her that her son uh, was probably dead. Uh, they tried to help uh, by removing the rubble with their hands, but this was you know, a two or perhaps three-story house. And there's only so much they could do. The bulk of the rescue effort has been done by uh, locals and by uh, volunteers. And people also, you know, um, flying in or driving in from other parts of the country. The, the outpouring of sympathy and support uh, by normal Turks has been you know, quite quite extraordinary as well. This earthquake is, is a tragedy in which untold numbers of lives will be lost. On top of that, the economy will be hit hard. There is almost no way around that. And then on top of that, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, is facing an election in May. Historically in Turkey, when there is an event of this nature, um, and you point to the quake in 1999, have people tended to blame the government and to vote out the person in charge? Well, people won't blame the government for the earthquake. Mm. They will mm -hmm. blame the government for the inadequate um, uh, response. And that was uh, certainly the case um, in the late 90s and 99, uh, when the earthquake struck near Istanbul. Um, uh, 
people felt at the time, and rightly so, that uh, the earthquake response was wholly botched. Um, and a common theme um, uh, during that 99 earthquake was, you know, where is the state? Um, Turks have been taught uh, for decades that um, you know, their state um, was there to protect them. Um, they have been taught to admire the power uh, of the state, and in 1999, the state was nowhere to be seen. Um, now, today, the situation has changed, and, um, you know, this government has actually taken uh, some steps to improve the emergency response, but it seems to be that the consensus is uh, that the government has not done enough, and it probably will have to shoulder uh, part of the blame, and um, that's going to hurt uh, Erdogan's chances of uh, re-election, and it's obviously going to make it uh, much harder for the ruling party to win come May. So there's almost certain to be a backlash. How big that backlash ends up being obviously depends on the ongoing rescue effort, and uh, perhaps it's too early to talk about reconstruction, but at least prospects for reconstruction. The focus right now is on the search and rescue effort and clearing the rubble, looking for survivors. Um, and even you know, 36 hours um, after the quake, um, there are people being pulled out alive. As far as housing people who have been rendered homeless by this, um, you know, a lot of folks depend or will depend on friends and relatives in other parts of the country. Social networks in Turkey are remarkably um, strong and resilient. Uh, so uh, people from places like Antakya will be able, or at least many of them will be able to find um, shelter with, uh, with friends or family elsewhere. Uh, many of the hotels here um, seem to have opened their doors to um, people displaced by the quake. Uh, I've seen libraries converted into temporary shelters, uh, mosques and schools. And there are obviously tent cities, you know, tents sprouting up all over the, the, the countryside here. From Antakya, where Piotr is, a video is going around of rescue workers giving a stuck but still smiling little boy sips of water from a bottle cap. The boy is reportedly Syrian, and there are a lot of Syrians in Turkey, of course, as a result of that country's civil war. Coming up next, what this quake did in and to Syria. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile, the only cell phone that tastes good. When the deal is too good to be true, there's probably a catch, right? That incredibly cheap flight to Europe? You probably can't bring a bag or pick your seat or use the restroom. So when I tell you that Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably wondering, what's the catch? Well, according to Mint Mobile, there is no 
catch. According to Mint Mobile, it's only 15 bucks a month and their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explain. That is mintmobile.com slash explain. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explain. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. It's Today Explained. We're back. Earlier this week in Idlib, northwest Syria, a crowd gathered and cheered as an entire family was pulled from a house alive. Three little kids, two girls and a boy were extracted first. The kids looked really stunned, but the rescue workers were loud and jubilant. And later their parents were removed on stretchers to more very loud cheering. Sarah Dadush is a Washington Post correspondent based in Beirut, Lebanon. That's where we reached her. Sarah is also Syrian, and she told us that northwest Syria, where that family was rescued, is unfortunately in much worse shape than even Turkey. So the earthquake that devastated Turkey and and, and Syria also struck both government-held parts of Syria and rebel-controlled areas uh, in the northwest it left, you know, destruction in its path, but the Syrians, both in government-held areas and in the Northwest, especially in the Northwest, uh, suffer from, you know, already compounding crises and and a lack of uh, funds and, and abilities to respond to such an emergency. So we're seeing people hit in, in North and Central Syria. What is life like for Syrians who are living in the Northwest, the rebel-held Northwest? So the the rebel-held Northwest has really kind of been battered by bombardment, battles, brutal humanitarian conditions with no end in sight. Mm. There's not enough medical facilities and not enough doctors. There hasn't been for years. Bombardment by the Syrian government's forces and their Russian allies has kind of pancaked a lot of uh, medical centers and a lot of buildings. It's really, really affected the structural integrity of buildings. All of this was made worse by the earthquake. How are people living in those areas? You know, people talk about refugee camps. What does that look like? Are people in buildings? Are they in tents? How might we, you know, envision this area? So out of the maybe 4.5 million people living in the Northwest in that opposition-held enclave, the UN estimates about 3 million people were displaced from elsewhere in Syria. Many had been displaced several times over. Some displaced people here have been uprooted several times and starting over has become routine. And many say they need international support now if they're to cope with the dire conditions they live in. For years, people have been living in tents, you know, among olive groves and on hard, very hard terrain, uh, exposed to the elements, uh, exposed to the rain and snow and cold. And a lot of the people who don't live in tents are forced to live in already damaged infrastructure. 
Uh, so that northwest corner was really not ready for a disaster like this. We spoke to a reporter in Turkey earlier in the show, and we could hear ambulances behind him. You know, it was evident, even though he said Turks do not have everything they need, they do have some of the things they need. What does the recovery look like? What is it expected to look like in northwest Syria? Um, If people are already kind of living at a bare minimum, who is helping? Who is available to help? I think the overwhelming sense in the northwest of Syria right now is that no one cares about northwest Syria. You know, that's the impression that residents have uh, because there isn't really an, a state that can govern. There is a pseudo state there, but none, not one that has uh, funds. It doesn't have enough ambulances. It doesn't have uh, the ability to dispatch firefighters or, or rescue workers. The rescue workers that exist there are the Syrian civil defense or what people call the white helmets. Um, and they're made up of members and volunteers. It's an aid group that operates in areas outside of government control. Our teams responded to the, to all the sites and the buildings. And still now, many families now are under the rubble. Our team's trying to save them. But it's 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 very difficult task for us. We need help. We need the international community to do something to help us, to support us. The weight of this has relied on them. They're the ones who have been pulling bodies and pulling people and trying to rescue everyone. This group has support from the UK government and other areas, but it has been saying it's not enough for years. Uh, bombardment happened as recently as this past month. The war has not ended in this area, which needs food, water, shelter, medical assistance on a regular basis, let alone after a disaster. Presumably, Sarah, the Syrian government cannot do anything in this region because it does not have any control in this region? I don't think the Syrian government would want to do anything. Western Aleppo neighbors Idlib province, the last major areas held by rebels. They and vast numbers of civilians are cornered there by President Bashar al-Assad's forces and their allies. The reason so many people have been displaced to that area, to the northwest, is because the Syrian government, whenever it recaptured areas, it it filled up, you know, these green buses with with rebel fighters and everyone that they deemed a traitor, which at the time would be pretty much anyone who was left in those rebel-held areas before being taken. So they just piled them onto buses and sent them to the northwest. It's supposed to be abandoned. This is on purpose uh, from the Syrian government. So... The Syrian government also doesn't really have enough means to deal with the, not just the crisis, but its normal economic woes as it is. What are the options then for the people living in this area? Um, what can they do? Can they go elsewhere, I guess, is the question. No, the, the people living there can't go elsewhere. I think many have been trying for a long time. People with special permissions, sometimes people who work in specific organizations, are able to move into the south of Turkey where a lot of Syrian refugees live. But for mostly these IDPs, these internally displaced peoples, don't really have a place to go. So they're just at this point just trying to find a place to sleep. Some of those who did manage to escape unharmed are now braving the cold, living on the streets of Aleppo. They're afraid to go home. You saw how a whole building just falls. It is terrifying. It's not as if mortars hit here or there. Here you walk in the streets, ambulances are everywhere, buildings are falling, people are walking in the streets, there are bodies. Is aid on its way there to northwest Syria? Can aid get there? I mean, if this is an area where you say there's, you know, the prospect of violence in a normal time, uh, what is it like trying to get help into northwest Syria? Getting help into northwest Syria is very difficult. 
Everything that goes in has to be approved. There's a border crossing that uh, the government allows for humanitarian aid to be sent in through. Uh, Russia threatens to veto the the renewal of this cross-border aid uh, every six months. And now we're seeing the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs uh, saying that damage rose and other devastation from the earthquake has forced the United Nations to stop deliveries from Turkey into northwest Syria. Um, which means millions of people are going to face, you know, dire conditions because of roads are broken, others are inaccessible, there are logistical issues that the UN says it's, it's facing right now. It honestly seems for people in northwest Syria like this is this is a plague. Um, these people cannot win. They're already displaced from their homes. Many have lost people because of the war. They don't have any place to go. And then on top of that, this devastating earthquake. Yeah, it feels as if this area just keeps going back in time, I think, for its residents. You know, they, they lost electricity because of the war. Internet is not as readily available because they've been cut off. Uh, water, as end of last year, we started seeing all of these cases of cholera that actually trickled into Lebanon uh, because of uh, contaminated water and, and, and unsanitary practices. Shelter was scant and now even more so. So it just feels like they're being pulled further and further back into a worse time. What do you think that the next few days and weeks will look like in northwest Syria? I think the effort to uh, rescue people will not abate, not even for a few days, I think longer, because after the rescue effort takes on a more grim tone and then it just becomes extraction efforts of all the different bodies. If the estimates are right and if they think that there might be thousands of bodies under the rubble, then this could just be a very, very tiring and exhausting, traumatic time for a place that's already been traumatized many, many, many times over. There's just a constant plea for any kind of support, so maybe something will come out of that. That was Sarah Dadouche with The Washington Post in Beirut. We were also joined by Piotr Zalewski from The Economist on the ground in Antakya in southern Turkey. If you'd like to know how to best help Turkey and Syria, uh, take a visit to Vox.com. My colleague Kelsey Piper has written The Challenge of Disaster Relief, an insightful article about what helps in these situations and what does not. Today's episode was produced by Avishai Artsy and edited by Matthew Collette. It was fact-checked by Laura Bullard and engineered by Paul Robert Mouncey. I'm Noelle King. It's Today Explained. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 